Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Terry Kuti was diagnosed with breast cancer not once, but twice. On the second occasion, she realized that her calling was also to help other patients make decisions about their treatment. Here to share her perspective is Terry Kuti. Terry, you're very welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I'm delighted to spend the time with you. I think you've been a trailblazer in terms of the development of healthcare, and that's what I want to explore with you today. You know, I I have to thank you very kindly, Moyes, for inviting me because this is such a powerful framework that we are working in in healthcare and such important information. What you're doing is huge. So I want to express my gratitude for you having me on your podcast today. Thank you very much. I also want to reflect that back to you, that I think that healthcare is on the cusp of major reform, and particularly in terms of partnership with patients. So let's dive straight in. We're going to talk a little bit about breast cancer, and breast cancer is a common condition. One in nine women eventually, in the course of their lives, will develop that condition. Tell us about your experience. How did you first meet that condition and how did that all unfold? I had breast cancer for the first time in 2002. At the time, I knew nothing about patient advocacy. It was my first diagnosis. And I found my lump in my left breast. I had a combination of lobular and invasive cancer. So I think I always say I was kind of a unicorn, but I found it upon monthly exam. And there are differing philosophies now about women doing monthly self-breast examination. I stand by it because to me, it's being body aware. So I always encourage women to do a monthly breast self-exam, whether they are still having their menses, their monthly cycle or not schedule it around your monthly cycle, or if you're not, schedule it the first of the month. So that's my call to action during this recorded session during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So I went through the standard of care in 2002 at a leading U.S. breast cancer center, which was MD MD Anderson, two lumpectomies. They didn't get clear margins the first time, which is common. The standard of care at the time was to have 18 weeks of heavy dose chemotherapy, which landed me in the hospital. It was just not pleasant. Lost all of my hair, went through the emotional and psychological changes of all that. Finished that up, took a six-week break, and then went straight into six weeks of daily radiation. And I finished that up. I actually kind of sailed through that. I didn't have many many problems with that. Finished that up. I did five years of tamoxifen, and I began what I call my return to health. And the best thing for me, we will weave this into the conversation at some point, but the best thing for me, Moyes, was getting back to the gym to reclaim what my body lost during treatment and surgery. We moved out of Texas and into uh, Arizona at the time, and I returned to school to get my master's in education. 
The reason I bring this up, Moya, is because I think what we do in life and the choices that we make are a collection of how we are brought up, who we are associated with, what our professional goals and choices are in life, all of the above. My parents always taught me to be servants of those who need help. And I'm I'm very grateful for that upbringing. And I watched them do it. They set examples for me. And, you know, they volunteered and, and helped others in community. So there was that. I am a trained ESL teacher. So I worked with a number of different cultures, families, administration. Then when I was in my master's program, I was doing a heavy dose of research, which I absolutely love. I didn't dive into research as much in my undergraduate as I did when I was working my master's program. However, during my master's program, I got my second diagnosis. And this time it was a recurrence in my left breast and a new primary in my right breast. So I was pretty certain that I was facing a double mastectomy. And in fact, after seeing my breast surgeon, it was confirmed that that was the best medical choice for me. I had no disagreements on that. But here's the thing. And this, I believe, was the turning point for me. I sat in her office the day she told me I needed a double mastectomy, and I had absolutely zero clue about any type of breast reconstruction, whether it was implants or autologous using your own tissue reconstruction. I had no idea. I didn't even know that that was going to be mentioned to me. But because my breast surgeon was so well-connected, in the medical community, she gave me all my options. She told me about implant and the types of implant reconstruction I could have. She also told me about tissue reconstruction using my own belly and other tissue reconstruction. But when she mentioned that to me, being the type of person I am, I call myself a bit of a purist, I didn't want anything foreign in my body. So it's kind of like the earmuffs went on for me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to use my own tissue if I do decide on this. But because it was my second occurrence, I had that mentality of a breast cancer patient. I need to get it out quick. And I counsel women now to take some time. It's rarely an emergency decision that you have to make. So I tell them to take their time. And by time, I mean a week, two weeks. Do some research. Find out what your options are. Find out if you want to have further surgery beyond a double mastectomy to reconstruct your breast. But it all worked out very nicely for me because I went ahead and scheduled my double mastectomy. And my surgeon, knowing that I wanted to have deep flap in the future and that I was going to research finding my just right plastic surgeon, as I call him. She left me with a skin envelope and did a skin sparing, nipple sparing mastectomy. Now it wasn't pretty, but there was a reason she left that residual skin for me. 
and it was to plan for my deep flap in the future. So while I was in recovery from my double mastectomy, I began to research for a plastic surgeon, a microsurgeon to be specific, because in the world of plastic surgery, there's a subspecialty called microsurgery, which means they learn to tie minuscule blood vessels together. And so the procedure that I had, the deep flap, it takes the dummy tissue, the underlying blood vessels, disconnects it, reconnects it to the main mammary artery to reconstruct a beautiful, soft, warm-feeling new breast. So I did that while I was recovering from my mastectomy, and it was then that it became clear to me, Moyes, I had more to do than just finish my master's in education. In fact, I did a pivot, and after my deep flap, seven months later in December of 2014, I switched my Twitter account. I started working on social media. I switched that account from education to reconstructive surgery, and I began connecting with people. And it was then I began writing a blog. It was more of a cathartic experience for me, and it was about my experience going through breast cancer twice in reconstruction. I began building that out, A year later, I got a phone call from the surgeon who did my surgery, and he realized the momentum of my blog, the work I was doing, and he encouraged me to open a nonprofit foundation to serve those who are going through this very difficult process to make a decision about having reconstruction. So in 2016, I began that process, and I never thought I would be in this space 10 years ago. But here I am, and I love this work. And I think, Moyes, it is because I realize the impact and the need for education and support in this space but it has grown. It's been personal growth for me. I should, I should clarify. It's been personal growth for me realizing the value of patient advocacy in the healthcare space. That is the Reader's Digest 10,000 foot condensed level of how I got started in this work and how very important I think it is with the huge amount of support that I have. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. Thank you. That's fantastic background. And I want to explore a whole bunch of issues, but let's start with this one. For the majority of women today who will get this diagnosis, the idea of doing research and the idea of finding the microsurgeon or whatever it happens to be will be beyond the pale. They will be thinking, I just want somebody, my specialist who I happen to have met in the corridor yesterday, 
to tell me the answer. Now that would be, to some extent, a mistake, depending on who they speak to. But on the other hand, you can see it from their perspective. This is a difficult area. What do you think is the answer to that? Because clearly they need advice, but they don't know what they don't know. Yes, there are varying degrees of autonomy when it comes to patients engaging with their surgeons. However, at my foundation, I feel very firmly about patients to empower them to have the best, most comprehensive, and most partnership-felt consultation with their surgeon. Now, that seems lofty, but there is a term that I have learned in this, you know, the years since I opened my foundation called shared decision making. This is a term that has been around for many years. Dartmouth College here in the U.S. has done massive research and, and was a forefront in leadership in it, in all of healthcare. But I learned about it and started doing more research and more discussion about it because what it means is a patient does, this is my interpretation for any patients listening. I think it's imperative, Moyes, that patients do a self-evaluation first before they have it, before they even go into a consult, before they even see a practitioner and say, tell me what to do. Because it really should be a partnership. And that is part of the shared decision-making model. So what they should do is do a personal self-assessment. And that means, what does your life look like after this diagnosis? I can use these in general terms for any healthcare diagnosis. What does your life look like beyond this diagnosis? How do you see yourself beyond breast cancer? What is your support system? Who is going to be there to help you during recovery? Because you may have to travel for this surgery. Even if you don't, there's going to be recovery time at home. Are you a mother? Are you a trained athlete? Do you work on a farm? What is your livelihood and what is important in your day-to-day living that defines you? And what would you like to see your life look like after that? Do you know what all your options are for breast reconstruction? Do you think you want implants? Do you, does tissue reconstruction resonate with what your lifestyle is and what you want? All of these things have to be evaluated prior to consultation Because then when you go into a consultation with your surgeon, you're prepared to have a conversation that is a partnership because you are expressing your preferences and your choices and what you know as a patient because you know yourself best. Then you allow the surgeon to bring on board his expertise what he brings to the table, and what he can do for you to accomplish those goals. 
Now, when I say there's different levels of autonomy, there are patients that want to be fully engaged in this type of conversation. But there are also patients who bring all this information to the table, who've done a self-assessment, and then they look at their surgeon and say, I would really like you to guide me in what you think the best decision for me is. And that is a shared decision-making conversation. There are different levels because we're not all cut from the same fabric, right? I want to reflect to you the ideas from a book called Scarcity, which was a book out of Princeton University. And essentially Mm -hmm. what the authors were saying was that when we face a huge challenge, whatever it happens to be, whether it's unemployment or a major illness or death of a loved one, we start tunneling. And when we're tunneling, we cannot be creative. We cannot be problem solvers. So I'm thinking about the woman who finds a lump and thinks the worst. And she sees her mortality in front of her. And she thinks, I don't want to think about this. Now, everyone's different, you're right. And some women will be very different in that they will be very, they will suddenly become extremely rational and extremely clear about what they want. But there'll be many others who are in the dark or who are tunneling and can only deal with today's problem today. How do we reach those people? How do we, as healthcare practitioners, how do we help as a community to bring those women around to the idea that there are choices? Boy, that is a very complex question, but I'm going to give an answer of hope and I'm going to give an answer of action because what we provide at the foundation that I have are those resources and education. I have interviewed healthcare providers, other patients, other healthcare professionals that serve the breast cancer community And this isn't me talking, interviewing, and telling them what I think they should do. These are actual professionals that work in this space. So if a patient, and when I talk about patient or member, I have a private Facebook group. Social media has been a powerful tool for me because many women don't Women and men, let's be all-inclusive here because men get breast cancer too. Many people don't want to go to an in-person event or an in-person support group. Maybe they don't have time. Maybe the energy that it takes to have all of that body language exchange and all of that, they they don't want to do that. And online is easier for them. So I curate an online support group. Patients sometimes come on there and they go, I don't really understand what it means when they say, you can fill in the blanks there. Or I'm having a very difficult time with, again, you can fill in the blanks. So many of these YouTube videos that I have or the podcasts that I have interviewing either any type of healthcare professional in many different spaces, I can provide that resource for them and they can sit and watch that. I have had patients say to me, I had no idea I could ask this question or I had no idea I could bring this up at my consult or 
I had no idea this was even a possibility. You don't know what you don't know, and you can't have a discussion on something you've never heard about or aren't aware of. And by me engaging with the healthcare community, I've purposely placed myself between the patient and the healthcare profession to be that conduit and that liaison of communication to shore the patient up and give them that information to help those, you know, I I hesitate to use the word marginalized, but to me, anybody that's not getting the education they need about this is marginalized. So we seek and we work to educate those people that aren't getting the resources by the resources that we provide. So what they do with that, I suppose, Moyes, is is their own decision, but I, I've seen it enlighten a lot of people and give them a voice, a voice in their care that they didn't have before. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I'm thinking now about the patients who don't just have breast cancer, but patients who've got epilepsy or diabetes or dementia, cancer of many other varieties, autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus. We are now talking about a root and branch reform of healthcare that does not require policy change, which is very critical. Policy change would help, of course, but let's set that aside as in the too hard basket for the majority of us who don't work in that field. So we're talking about the link that links patients and professionals, whatever that professional is. And your example in breast cancer is a good one because essentially you've worked through these issues. You've identified where the touchstones are for people to get the advice they need, whether it's breast reconstruction, whether it's how do I deal with chemotherapy or how do I reduce the hair loss or how do I cope with that or how do I deal with my sex life and all the rest of it, all the things Mm -hmm. that become problematic once you have a condition like breast cancer. Let's translate that now into all the other conditions that are out there where we could get this sort of thing happening. But what do you think are the key components of that key link between providers of whatever variety and patients? I think the key link is to engage patients who have been through any particular type of healthcare issue. Now, that's easier said than done. Not everybody wants to be in this space. Not everybody wants to work in the advocacy space. But I encourage healthcare professionals in any specialty, when you see a patient, whether what you have done with them through their treatment was seamless and they had no side effects and they had or whether they did have side effects and you got through them. Seek out those patients, identify them, and ask, would you be interested in helping provide some patient education? How do you feel about 
some patient advocacy in the space of epilepsy, in the space of rheumatoid arthritis, in the space of whatever healthcare it is. You have to ask. You have to start the conversation. Now, I will add, Moyes, that I think it is imperative and it is incumbent upon any patient advocate to try to remain evidence-based, especially when we're dealing with anybody newly diagnosed. We are in a vulnerable state on social media or even in support groups. Things can become a little dramatic. That's human nature. But I contend at the end of the day, patients want evidence. They want to be exposed to clinical trials. They want to be exposed to research that has proven successful. And so guide your patient advocates to seek that type of information, guide them to those resources. There's a lot of organizations that are now willing to train patient advocates in various spaces. And I think this is something that we have to look for in this space. If you're a healthcare provider, there are certainly individuals who are willing to help, who are more than qualified. But I really encourage physicians now to ask for that help. We want to be partnerships in this care and to help other patients. So got to ask, got to start the conversation. You make some key points there, Terry, and one of which is snake oil salesmen are not welcome into this space. We need Mm. evidence-based care that patients can rely on. And of course, I can see as a healthcare professional how this works, and I have done this myself, is to direct patients to support groups where real patients are able to provide the kind of advice that is necessary that often takes time to unpack and for those options to be laid out for that patient. But we also need champions, and we've interviewed a number of them in this podcast, in the diabetes space, in the rheumatoid arthritis space, in a whole bunch of other areas, and now with you in the breast cancer space. In your scanning of the horizon of those kind of champions, have you seen hope? Have you seen people standing up saying, I am a patient with colorectal carcinoma, I have this group? Are you seeing that movement from your vantage point? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I am so shored up by, I call them my patient advocate colleagues in my space, whether it is in breast cancer, oncology, radiology, the conferences that they are now attending, going to, engaging with, and being asked to be on panels, to be asked to be part of poster presentations and research. I cannot tell you how much value there is to patient advocates when when we are asked to engage. And I do see this paradigm shift. And that is my greatest hope that this is just going to 
continue to increase because I see it as such a valuable component of healthcare. So yes, I'm just giving a shout out to my patient advocate colleagues. They teach me a lot. They inspire me. And we all share together the information that we gather. Because as you said, please no snake oil. (laughs) That's not what we're interested in. Give us research, give us evidence-based, and and let's keep it positive and a spirit and collective tribe of working together for patients. I couldn't agree more, and that's a fantastic place for us to pause the conversation on this occasion. Terry, it's been a joy spending time with you, a great deal of wisdom. I feel very hopeful as a healthcare professional that the evolution of healthcare will include both patients and professionals who are willing to enter into a partnership. Partnership is what it is now all about. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you for all your work in this space. I truly appreciate it. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.